I want you to join me in the Bible in the Gospel according to Matthew chapter 27. While I was um, uh, with my family this week, we met another family and we got to talking about a few things and and I shared with them that very soon with our church family, I'm going to be going to Honduras. And uh, as soon as I mentioned that, the dad spoke up, this other family, and said, you know about the airport in Honduras, don't you? And immediately I thought two things. No, I don't. I don't know if I want to. <laughs> he said, yeah, I was just watching. Now, some of you are going with us to Honduras. You're really paying attention now. He said, yeah, I've been there, and then I was watching a television program. It's the most dangerous runway in the world. I said, no, I don't think I want to hear anymore. <laughs> he said, yeah, you, you come in, and, and, and the runway is one of the shortest in the world, and then it ends at the end of a cliff. I said, no, it doesn't. He said, yeah, it does. I said, please tell me no, it doesn't. He said, no, it really does. He said, bud, they've added a few feet. He said, feet. I, I was hoping you'd say yards or even miles. He's added a few feet to it recently, so it's not near as dangerous as it used to be. For a few moments, I thought, well, you know, we don't really need to go to Honduras after all. But, um, but then yeah, I said, no, no, in, you know, in obedience, we'll, we'll, we'll continue to joyfully go to Honduras uh, upcoming in September. We, we talked about this summer, the summer's winding down, we know, uh, that we've been on this airline view of the Bible, the, the broad, the big picture, if you will, and now we're going to come in for a landing, at least to make the approach, because the whole Bible, it's directing into a specific person, a specific event, a specific day, a specific moment. The Bible is not about teaching nice people to be nicer. That's not the message of the Bible. The Bible is about how a holy God can redeem unholy people without compromising his own holiness by the way he goes about it. And there's only one way that God can do that. To redeem unholy people, we're unholy. And that's by Jesus Christ, his death, his crucifixion on the cross, being a propitiation is the word the Bible uses, a wrath-absolving Savior. We don't hear much about the wrath of God anymore, do we? we? We've changed our tune, but the Bible and God has not. We must be saved by the wrath of God. The Bible doesn't say that the wrath is coming. The Bible says we're under his wrath. And if something doesn't happen, that's where we'll be forever. You ready for some good news? Something's happened. This morning we're going to talk about the God who dies and lives again. So when I ask you to turn to Matthew chapter 27, what I actually ask you to do is to turn to sort of the centerpiece of eternity. It's it's where everything hinges for us this morning. And what I want to talk to you about are what we're going to call the ironies of the cross. The ironies of the cross. Irony is a word that's frequently misused. So I want to use the proper definition. The word irony means when you say something, and by actually what you're saying, you're you're really saying the opposite of what's formally stated. That's the definition of irony. And so there are some ironies here in the cross. Matthew is a marvelous writer. I love to read. I love to read biographies. For some reason in the summer, I love to read Agatha Christie books. So I've read a couple of those. But, but what I most like to read are biographies. But the Gospels, while they're biographical, we couldn't quite categorize them as biographies. They're more than that. Um, most biographies end with when someone dies. I love to read biographies, particularly presidential biographies of Truman or Lincoln or Roosevelt. When they die, you kind of know the book's just about over because there's not much more to say. A biography is about somebody's life. Well, Jesus dies 
but he doesn't stay dead at the end of his biography. The good news is he dies and he lives again. I want to give you a real simple thought. Jesus is alive. He's alive right now. The one that we're all going to stand before is alive right now. Now, I know with your eyes, you, you, you may say, I cannot see him. Well, the Bible says we walk by faith, not by sight. But I'll tell you this, one day our faith will be made sight. And once your faith has been made sight or you've got eyes to see, you'll wish you had had the faith that he said to begin with, to, to have to begin with. If you don't have any faith and then your sight becomes sight, even though you didn't have faith, you'll say, oh, now I believe. And unfortunately, at that moment, it'll be too late. So let's get a look at him by faith this morning, the ironies of the cross. And the first irony, if you have an outline, if you're one of those fill-in-the-blank people, you can be, you, can, you don't have to be, but if you are, here's the first thing that we want to say. The ironies of the cross is the man who is mocked as king really is the king. He's mocked as being the king, but here's the irony. He really is the king. Read with me in Matthew chapter 27, beginning in verse 27. The soldiers of the governor took Jesus into the governor's headquarters, and they gathered the whole battalion before him. Now, these soldiers of the governor and this battalion were talking about Roman governor and Roman soldiers. And what unfortunately can happen to men in these roles is they, these men have seen a lot of violence, and, and, their, and their hearts have sort of become calloused to their own behavior. And, and, and if you read military history or even pay attention to the news in our own day, we've heard stories of people getting in situations that it, it, they wouldn't normally do. But they've been through so, uh, they've seen so much violence, and then they get in this group, and it just begins to kind of feed on itself. And that's what happens in this scene. Now, it says they took Jesus. Now, now the soldiers on the surface, it looks like Jesus is far outnumbered, and numerically speaking, that's true. But in a moment, he could speak, and they'd all be gone. Jesus says something very important. Nobody takes my life from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. Sin brings about death. So, when Jesus was born and lived on the earth, he never sinned. So theoretically speaking, though he was born 2,000 years ago, he could still be just walking on the earth alive because he would have never died because he never sinned. Nobody took his life from him. He did not die of so-called natural causes. He gave his life. He laid down his life. That's what he's doing here. So it says they took him. No, no, no. He, he's not going where they're making him go. He's going where he voluntarily goes. And I want to share with you the reason he's doing this is because God so, what the world? So loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. Why is Jesus even in this room? Because he loves you. That's why the, the, the soldiers, they, they think they're in control. And then they're going to do something. They're going to mock him as the king one of the first irony of the cross is they mock him as king. He really is the king. They stripped him and put a scarlet robe on him. Now, briefly, I want to say we've, we're in Matthew 27, verse 27, and so we, we kind of jumped in midstream here. Jesus has already been whipped. He's already been scourged. He's already been spit on. He's already been through a, a kangaroo court with Herod where they beat him and spit on him and mocked him. So as they stripped him... Um, 
the, the body that they've stripped, it's already kind of torn to pieces. And then they put a scarlet robe on him. And twisting together a crown of thorns, they put it on his head and put a reed in his right hand. And kneeling before them, they mocked him, saying, Hail, King of the Jews! That was the charge that they had brought against him. There was no true charge they could bring against Jesus. But what they charged him with was insurrection. And they spit on him. Those are kind of hard words to get past. Jesus is God in the flesh. And here's how human beings treated him. They spit on him. There's nothing more low that you can do to a a human being than to spit on them. They they spit on him and took the reed and struck him on the head. And when they had, uh, they used this reed as sort of a scepter, a mock scepter. And they took that scepter and they, they hit him on the head and they stripped him of the robe and put his own clothes on him and led him away to crucify him. The first irony of the cross is that the man who is mocked as the king, he really is the king. They thought they were doing this spectacle. They're making fun of him. These are Roman soldiers sent to a Jewish land, and they're not from this culture. They're not from this place. And it really made no matter. The Jewish people also turned their backs on Christ and demanded that he be crucified. But, but here are these Roman soldiers serving the governor. They thought the Roman emperor was the one in charge. He's really the king. Well, no, he's not. Actually, the king is the one you're spitting on, and the king's the one you're mocking, and the king's the one that you are violent uh, against. I want you to hold your place there in Matthew, because not every Roman soldier acted this way uh, around Jesus. So go, go back to Matthew chapter 8, and I want you to see a man who recognizes the authority of Jesus. I don't think he was there that day in Matthew 27, but he's certainly there in Matthew chapter 8. If, if, uh, if you're in Matthew 8, just look over at Matthew 7, and if you have a red-letter edition of the Bible, what do you notice about Matthew 7? Pretty much all is in red, right? So also is Matthew 6 and Matthew 5, collectively known as the Sermon on the Mount. So that's the teaching ministry of Jesus. And then in conjunction with his teaching ministry, he also has a, has a healing ministry. And though he was a teacher, and we'll see here in a moment, is a healer, Jesus' greatest ministry was, was his dying ministry. That's what he came to do. If he had simply taught or healed some people but not died, he'd be no savior. That's not what he came to do. He came, he said, his own words, I've come to give my life as a ransom for many. And really his teaching ministry and his healing ministry were supportive of his dying ministry. He taught about the reason he had to die. And even his miracles, his healing ministry were sort of word pictures, were sort of object lessons of spiritual healing. So, so when he raises physically dead people to life, it's not just to that end, but it's also to, so you can know, though you'll be dead in your trespasses and sins, you can be alive in Christ. Though you'll be spiritually blind, you can have spiritual sight. So, so here's a healing ministry. Uh, just notice, here's a man who recognizes that Jesus has authority. When he had entered Capernaum, a centurion came forward to him, appealing to him, Lord, my servant is lying paralyzed at home, suffering terribly. Now, again, these are the days before anesthesia before Tylenol before any of any of those things and so so this man had suffered some sort of injury it's paralyzed him and and he's suffering he's in constant pain so Jesus said to him I will come and heal him 
But the centurion replied, Lord, I'm not worthy to have you come under my roof, but only say the word and my servant will be healed. Now again, notice it says that this is a centurion. This isn't a foot soldier. This is a man who's got some, uh, <laughs> some, some rank. He's a centurion. I mean, he's got at least 100 people under his command. And, and he said, Lord, I'm not worthy to have you come under my roof, but only say my word and say, say the word rather, and my servant will be healed. For I too am a man under authority with soldiers under me. And I say to one, go, and he goes, and to another, come, and he comes, and to my servant, do this, and he does it. When Jesus heard this, he marveled and said to those who followed him, truly, I tell you, with no one in Israel have I found such faith. What he's saying is, here's a Gentile, and he has more faith than than anybody in, 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 anybody in Israel. I tell you, many will come and feast, excuse me, from east and west and recline at table with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven, while the sons of the kingdom will be thrown into the outer darkness. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. And the centurion, to the centurion, Jesus said, Go, let it be done for you as you have believed. Keep bumping up at that word, don't we, in the Bible. You have believed. And the servant was healed at that very moment. Here's a, here's a centurion. His whole life's about authority. He just said that. I tell one guy to go, and he goes. Now, and most of us in our jobs, if your boss kind of tells you to do something, if you're, you know, you're going to do it. But in the military, it's, it's not a matter of I'll get around to it. You do something when they say to do it. Now, I didn't serve in the military, but uh, uh, my brothers did, my dad did, and I understand if, uh, if uh, somebody who has a greater authority, greater rank than you says, drop and give me however many push-ups, you, you do that many. If they say, hey, carry this over here, you're going you're gonna to carry it. You don't, it's not up for discussion. And so I come back and ask us, do we recognize that Jesus is king? When he tells us to do something, it's, not, it's really not up for discussion. It's really not up for debate. When he says go into all the world to proclaim the gospel, we don't say, well, we'll think about it. When he says, if someone strikes you on one cheek, turn to him the other also, we don't say, I don't feel like doing that. I imagine those of you who served in the military were very often asked to do things that you didn't feel like doing. And I'm not making out your relationship with Jesus to be like a, a dutiful soldier. You're to be a joyful soldier. Because the one that you serve is the one who's laid his life down for you and redeemed you and purchased you. And the only reason you even have life is because of him. And Jesus doesn't, you know, probably in the military, some people can be on some power trips. I'm just, I'm just conjecturing right now. And they might just get you to do something just because they want to see you do it. And Jesus isn't that way. His commands, if he tells you to do something, it's always for your good. There is not one thing Jesus will ever tell you to do that's not for your good. When he tells you that you should forgive other people, you know why he's doing that? Because it's, it's really, it's for your good. It's also for the other person's good. Nothing gives God more glory than when people obey him joyfully. When you forgive your enemies, it gives him glory. All his commands are for your good, and they're also for his, for his glory. So anytime that you decide that you don't obey him, what you're really saying is, I'm choosing now not to give you glory. This, this Roman soldier understood that here is a man with authority. Now go back to Matthew 27. This king. I'll just read it again. They took him. They stripped him. Put a crown of thorns on his head. Kneeling before him in mockery. They said, Hail, King of the Jews. They spit on him. 
struck him in the head. When they mocked him, they stripped him of the robe and put on his own clothes and led him away to be crucified. Now, in that moment, they mocked him and kneeled before him. But let me tell you what the Bible says. The Bible says that he did not consider equality with God a thing to be grasped, but made himself of no reputation, took on the form of a servant, and became humble to death, even death on a cross. Therefore God has given him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus, you know what it says, right? Every, what? Knee will bow. Every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. What that means is those soldiers who did this on that day, there's going to come a day where they are going to get on their knee and they are going to bow before him and they're going to realize that one that we mocked as king, he really is the king. But that's not just them. That's not just them. That's also us. I just want you to think about this in your mind. Now, I know you say you're a preacher. You're supposed to say things like this, but this is Bible truth. There's going to come a moment where you're going to be before him. And I want to just give you this testimony. When I'm before him and I bow my knee before him on that day, that's not going to be the first time that I do it. I, I want to be a man who bows my knee before him now. Not just a surface way. How do we know? Do we do what he says? You, know, you can do all the, all the physical bowing you want to do. Have you bowed on the inside where your heart is? Have you bowed before him and said, you're the king. What you say to do, I'll do. If not, if not, you're mocking him as king. To say you're the king, but then not do what he says. It's mockery. No, he really is the king. Second irony of the cross is the man who is utterly powerless is transcendently powerful. The man who seems utterly powerless is transcendently powerful. Let's keep reading together. Verse number 32. As they went out, they found a man of Cyrene, Simon by name, They compelled this man to carry his cross. And when they came to a place called Golgotha, which means place of a skull, they offered him wine to drink mixed with gall, but when he tasted it, he would not drink it. And when they had crucified him, they divided his garments among them by casting lots. Then they sat down and kept watch over him there. Not too far um, in the past from this account, the Roman soldiers had changed their... uh, modus operandi, so to speak, their mode of operations. It used to be that they would crucify somebody and then just leave them there. They'd either nail them to a cross or tie them to a cross, but actually what began to happen is after the soldiers left, people would come and take people off the cross. Uh, They'd untie them and so on and so forth. So criminals were actually, although they'd been through a tremendous ordeal, were actually surviving crucifixion. And so the Roman soldier says, well, no, we can't do this anymore. So what they said is now they got to stand watch. They're on guard now. So the soldiers have to stay there the whole time while a man's literally dying. And sometimes that ordeal, I mean, I can go on for quite a while. Jesus died in six hours. Uh, 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 again, because he laid down his life. But there are some, I mean, you're talking about an ordeal. Nailed to the cross, just the simple act of breathing is excruciatingly painful. Because you're hanging down, and so to take a breath, you actually have to Get yourself up so air can fill the lungs. And so you'd have to, feet nailed to the cross, you have to push up on that nail and pull up on the, just to take a breath. And then you, and, uh, you, you fight that for a while, but in the end, you're going to die. One, one way that the Romans would 
speed the process up at times was they'd bring their club along and they'd just sh- uh, smash the shin bones of those being crucified. When that happens, you, you, you can't push yourself up anymore. And so at that time, a s- suffocation was just a matter of moments. So this is a pretty grisly affair. This is pretty gruesome stuff we're talking about. And, and while they're there, okay, they've got to be there, what do they do with their time? They sat down and kept watch over him there, uh, and they're casting lots over his garments. They divided his garments among them by casting lots. One of the tunics that most men would wear um, always had sentimental value to them. Uh, in, in, in these days, not a lot of people had a whole lot of money. And, and so very often, uh, when, a, when a boy was going to leave home, he'd always wear the tunic. The tunic is, the, is a piece of clothing you'd always wear. It's sort of like you've got your favorite shirt, right? Most of us have, you know, 10, 15, 20 shirts, and you just pick. Well, back in those days, you didn't have a whole wardrobe, right? So Jesus pretty much would have worn the same tunic for the most part day after day after day. And, uh, and a mom... One of the, the traditional things that she would do is she would make the tunic for the man. When he's full grown and going to leave home, you have to worry about it. You know, I made it and now he's grown. You know, some of you got teenage boys, you understand. Oh, man, we just bought new clothes for school last year and now he's grown eight inches since school ended three months ago. But, but when they were full grown and they're going to leave home, the mom would have made the tunic. She'd just sewn it herself and she'd put a lot of care into it and uh, pick the color. You know, it's either white or khaki. <laughs> and she'd have prepared it. And it was a gift that the mom would give the son that he'd have taken it wherever he went. And uh, I just want you to think about this is going on, and they're casting lots, and guess who's there? There's Mary. And you remember what the angel said to, to Mary when the baby Jesus was born? Or excuse me, um, Zachariah. He said, this, this boy's going to pierce your heart. And I just think in my little imagination that when she sat there, and there's that tunic, she most likely had made for Jesus, covered in blood. And, and, and she looks at it, and if that's that moment where her heart's just pierced, there's my boy being crucified. And then these, these men don't even have the, um, I mean, these are some cold-hearted characters, aren't they? They're just casting lots for it. They're gambling over it. They don't even want it. They're just filling their time with it. Unfortunately, that's what many people do with their life. They waste it doing things they don't even really want to do. And sometimes I think it must have been at that moment, Jesus on the cross when he looks down at Mary with John standing there and says, Behold your son, behold your mother. Anyway, a little sidetrack there, but there's a lot of emotion going on here in this account. Uh, they, over his head they put this charge against him which read, This is Jesus, the king of the Jews. Then two robbers were crucified with him, one on the right and one on the left. And those who passed by derided him, wagging their heads and saying, You who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself if you are the Son of God. Come down from the cross. So also the chief priests with the scribes and elders mocked him, saying, He saved others. He cannot save himself. He is the King of Israel. Let him come down now from the cross, and we will believe him. He trusts in God. Let God deliver him now, if he desires him. For he said, I am the Son of God. And the robbers who were crucified with him also reviled him in the same way. Over and over, we just keep getting these being mocked, being reviled, being ridiculed. And he seems, now he seems utterly powerless. But he's not. He's transcendently powerful. Let's just get a glimpse of that in Luke chapter 8. I want you to see his power and... uh, (laughs) 
at the same time that Jesus is transcendently powerful, he's also incredibly uh, tender, if that's the right word. He's powerful, but not like some powerful animal that's out of control. I mean, he, he, he's powerful, but he's also kind. He's transcendently powerful, but he's also merciful, compassionate. And one of the scenes, we see that all over the Gospels, but one of, the, one, of, one of my favorites, we'll just put it that way, is Luke 8, beginning in verse 40. Now when Jesus returned, not a great phrase, he's going to do that again, by the way. When Jesus returned, the crowd welcomed him, for they were all waiting for him. There came a man named Jairus, who was a ruler of the synagogue, and falling at Jesus' feet, he implored him to come to his house, for he had an only daughter, about 12 years of age, and she was dying. Now, it's not a leap in my mind. I've got two precious little girls and a third on the way, and a dad has, uh, you've heard of daddy's girl. I, I feel like that was certainly the case here. So here's Jairus. His daughter's dying. She's, she's 12 years old. He comes to Jesus, falls at his feet, implores him to come. He's out of options. So Jesus, as he went, the people pressed around him, and there was a woman who had a discharge of blood for 12 years. And though she had spent all her living on physicians, she could not be healed by anyone. She came up behind him and touched the fringe of his garment, and immediately her discharge of blood ceased. And he said, Who was it that touched me? When all denied it, Peter said, Master, the crowd surrounds you and are pressing in on you. But Jesus said, Someone touched me, for I perceive that power has gone out from me. And when the woman saw that she was not hidden, she came trembling and falling down before him, declared in the presence of all the people why she had touched him and how she had been immediately healed. How had she been healed? Immediately healed, right? And he said to her daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace. I want you to just, uh, just think with me for a few moments about his power and his compassion and his tenderness. We've got some urgent things going on in the crowd. We've got a man whose daughter's dying, and then we've got another woman who's been dealing with a fairly significant medical condition, and it says for 12 years. I, I thought on it for a little while and didn't come up with a conclusion of why the girl's 12 years old and the, uh, and the woman's had the discharge of blood for 12 years, other than to just say they've both been going on for 12 years, right? So, so uh, 12 years is a, is, is, is a long time for her to have dealt with this issue. It's not a long time for this girl to have been alive. It's one of the things that I thought. 12 years for her to have this constant uh, bleeding issue has, has been miserable, and yet we'd say of the 12-year-old girl, her life's just starting. And, and so what he's showing is that, he, that, that he's, he's sort of beyond time, okay? Jesus is transcendent. Uh, time doesn't uh, restrict him. But no, think, think about this poor lady. 12 years. What would 12 years ago have been? 2001. It's a pretty good amount of time. And it says a couple of things about her. One, she spent everything that she's had. I don't know how much that was, <laughs> if it was a lot or if it was a little, but, but she's out. She's exhausted her resources. And really, and really, it's kind of an uncomfortable issue that she's got. We're, we're not going to go into detail medically about what she's got going on. Just say a few things about it. It made her ritually unclean. She's not been to church in 12 years. She's not been able to go to the temple for 12 years. So she's, she's kind of an outcast socially. And, and then... It's private. I mean, this is an issue that's going on in her life for 12 years that she can't really talk to anybody about it. Uh, I mean, this isn't, this isn't um, 
<laughs> appropriate dinner conversation. This issue of bleeding. That she's, so, so, so it's private and it's, it's kind of shameful. She's probably embarrassed about it. Now, do you remember when I said that Jesus has a healing ministry, but the healing ministry is not just an end and of itself. It, it points to the cross because take a step back. Some of us have got some sin issues going on in our life that, uh, that we kind of be ashamed to talk about it in front of other people, just, just truthfully. We, we, we wouldn't really want to go to lunch today, and once you pick your place and sit down and, and, and begin to divulge the details of the sin that you really struggle with. Several weeks ago, we, we talked about the sin of pornography because it's, it's, a, it's a sin that's, that's really getting its grip deeply into a lot of men in our culture. And that's a sin that, that's like this. You don't want to talk about it. You, you don't want to call anybody on the phone and say, you know what, I'm uh, immersed in the sin of pornography. You feel ashamed. Some of, uh, some of us have wrestled with these kind of sins for years, 12 years, 15 years, 20 years. And it, it's led you to a point where you feel cut off and you feel isolated and nobody knows about it and it's just something you're carrying around. And, and in a way, you feel like you've spent everything you know to do. You, you've exhausted your options. You've tried stuff. Maybe your issue is not pornography. It's just a real jealous spirit, a real jealous heart. And, man, you've been to the bookstore over and over and you've seen the book titles and you said, man, if I read this, maybe this will help me. Maybe, maybe, this, maybe, maybe this time it'll, it'll take it, and you've spent a lot of money on books, or you've been to conferences, or you've gotten uh, software for your computer that blocks the pornography, and you, but it just, it just keeps... Here's what it said of her. She could not be healed by anyone. And maybe that's how you feel. You said, I, uh, and uh, again, not to go into detail with the, uh, with the blood loss, but you know what happens when you lose blood? You lose life. You lose energy. You lose initiative. That's what sin does to your life. Some of you are there, man. You're saying, man, I, I want to follow Jesus, but here's the issue. Whether it's jealousy or anger or pornography or lust or greed, and it's literally draining you of, of life. And so when we say things like, uh, there's a mission trip opportunity coming up to Belarus, you say, I don't think that's for me because I just, I just, I just, I just. And, and the blood loss isolates you, cuts you off. And then maybe you're even here today. And you say, man, I keep showing up for church, but in my mind, I feel like I can't be healed by anybody. And then she has this one small idea. She came up behind him. Every phrase of her is talking about her disposition. She doesn't come up to him face to face. Now, Jairus did. Jairus fell down at his feet, okay? Jairus said, hey, I, I need help, and I need it now. And some of us have issues like that. We just say, I don't mind talking about it because it's so urgent. So there are sin issues that we deal with that, that we don't mind talking about. In fact, we need help for it right now. And then there are sin issues that we have, and we're like, I don't want anybody else to know about it. I want to creep in the back door. I want to come up behind him. And she says, it says, touch the fringe of his garment. You want to hear some good news about Jesus? He's got power for people who fall at his feet, and he's got power for people who just want to touch the fringe of his garment from, <laughs> from behind. That's what it says, uh, fringe of his garment. Her issue had made her unclean, and I think one of the things that she's really wrestling with is, I feel like if I touch somebody else with my uncleanness, they're going to become unclean. You want to hear some good news? You can't make Jesus unclean. 
You can't make him unclean. He's transcendently powerful. But when he gets on the cross, do you know what he becomes? In the eyes of God, the Father, unclean. Willingly. He's a sin sacrifice. That's what he's doing. Well, he's not on the cross being killed by the Romans. He's on the cross absolving the wrath of God against all uncleanness, against pornography, against jealousy, against anger. Jesus is taking it all on himself. This is a gospel truth, okay? So the wrath of God is being poured out on Jesus Christ when he's being crucified. Now you see him here in Luke 8, and he, she, she, this woman gets up the nerve, all right? She's, she spent everything she had. She's exhausted emotionally, spiritually, financially, physically. Last shot I got, she just touches the hinge of, her garment, of his garment. Read it with me. Immediately her discharge of blood ceased. Twelve years immediately her blood ceased. Now, whatever your sin issue is, I got good news for you. It can cease. You can be freed. You can be redeemed. That blood loss can be stopped by Jesus. Not by the physicians, not by the books, by Jesus. Jesus said, who was it who touched me? And all denied it. You know who that includes? That woman. (laughs) She doesn't want to be put in the spotlight. Some people are like that, right? I mean, anything but getting up in front of people. When all denied it, Peter said, well, Master, you know, Peter's always got something to say. Master, the crowd surrounds you and are pressing in on you, but but Jesus said, someone touched me, for I perceive that power has gone out from me. Good news, good news. Jesus has got power, and he doesn't keep it to himself. It goes from him into somebody else, And the purpose of the power is healing. Some of us need to be healed. Some of our marriages need to be healed. Some of our families need to be healed. Good news, Jesus has power, and he uses the power to heal. When the woman saw that she was not hidden, that lets you know what she she wanted to be hidden. She came trembling, falling down before him, declared in the presence of all the people why she had touched him. And how she'd been immediately healed. And perhaps her anticipation was that all the people there were going to say, oh, we don't need to talk about that. But Jesus says to her, daughter. Now, now my inclination is to think there's been a long time before anybody had really spoken tenderly to her. She'd heard words like patient from a physician, patient so-and-so. But Jesus says, daughter. Your faith has made you well. Go in peace. Isn't that a wonderful picture of the way God, specifically Jesus Christ, heals people who reach out to him. All her cards are on the table, you know. It's not like, okay, a little bit of Jesus, a little bit of, I mean, when she's in humility, wanted to be healed. Jesus can do it. Now, the other issue we have is uh, there's another guy standing by, and, and he's real anxious. And, okay, that's a pretty cool thing you're doing with the lady, but my daughter is dying. Remember me? You said you were coming with me. And one of the pictures is that Jesus has got time for all of us, okay? Some of us are in the room, and we're already thinking, yeah, well, Jesus is going to help them, and she's going to help their marriage, but not my marriage. She's going to help his sin issue, but not my sin issue. You're like Jairus in that moment. But here, look what it says. While he was still speaking, someone from the ruler's house and came and said, your daughter is dead. 
do not trouble the teacher anymore. Okay, maybe Jesus can deal with bleeding, but he can't deal with dying. There's a, there's a point that we can cross where we, 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 we pass the deadline. Jairus is thinking, if I can get him there before she's dead, maybe he can do something. That's what their conclusion was. But Jesus, on hearing this, answered him, do not fear. Only believe. You see those two things juxtaposition. Fear, belief. One of them's going to rule the day in your life, okay? Do not fear, Jesus said, only believe. She will be well. When he came to the house, he followed, excuse me, he allowed no one to enter with him except Peter and John and James and the father and the mother of the child. All were weeping and mourning for her. But he said, do not weep, for she is not dead, but sleeping. And they laughed at him, knowing that she was dead. They've taken the pulse. They've done the whole thing. And now I want you to see his compassion again. He's transcendently powerful, but amazingly tender. I just want to picture that in your hand. You got, uh, it says, taking her by the hand. Okay, so see his hand, and, and then you see this little 12-year-old girl hand in his hand saying, child. Uh, original, it's uh, Talitha Kumi in Aramaic. Little translation, little lamb, little lamb, arise. And her spirit returned, and she got up at once. And he directed that something should be given to her to eat. Her parents, what do you think, were amazed. But he's charged them to tell no one what had happened. Pretty amazing, isn't it? A couple things real quick. The one on the cross who seems utterly powerless is transcendently powerful. And maybe in your mind, again, you've got an issue in your life. You said, we're past the deadline, okay? It's dead. Good news. Jesus brings dead things back to life, okay? So he, he said, no, it's dead. No, he's in the room. And when Jesus and death are in a room, only one of them walking out, and it's not death. Jesus brings life. He's transcendently powerful. He didn't just come, though. You go back in your mind to that little, little 12-year-old girl's hand in his hand. Because I wanted to talk to you what they did with these hands of Jesus. And in that moment, there are no nail scars in the hand, but they're coming, okay? So Jesus comes to, to, to hold that little girl's hand, but those Roman soldiers took those same hands and they nailed them to a cross. See, these hands didn't just come to heal. They came to be nailed to a cross in order to, guess what, in order to heal. Because when they put the nails in those hands, something starts coming out. It's blood. Without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sin. He's not utterly powerless. He's transcendently powerful. We'll do the next one quickly. Number three. The man who can't save himself saves others. Isn't that what they're saying to him? Isn't this this awful? I mean, to, to, to be yelling and mocking a man who's been scourged, who's been beaten, and being crucified. I mean, you've seen people talk trash in a you know, basketball game or something while they're competing. But to, but, but, to, but to say these sorts of things to a man while he's dying, I mean, this is a whole other degree of, uh, of a hard-heartedness and, and darkness. But they said he, can't say, he saved others. Why can't he save himself? Let me answer the question very quickly. He doesn't save himself because if he did save himself, he could not save others. Put another way, he saves others by not saving himself. Look at verse number 39. 
And those who passed by derided him, wagging their heads and saying, You who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself. If you're the Son of God, come down from the cross. Now, Jesus doesn't listen to them. He listens to the Father. And when they say, if you're really the Son of God, come down from the cross, the answer is he doesn't come down from the cross precisely because he is the Son of God. So also the chief priests with the scribes and elders mocked him, saying, He saved others. He cannot save himself. He is the king of Israel. Let him come down from the cross, and we will believe in him. No, we believe in him, not because he came down from the cross, but because he stayed on the cross. He trusts in God. Let him deliver him now. The man who can't save himself saves others. If Jesus, and he was fully capable, by the way, did come down off the cross, we're done for we're finished. Nothing to sing about, nothing to celebrate. We, uh, we're, we're, the wrath of God still remains on us. Here's the gospel, good news. Jesus bore the wrath of God so that you would not have to, and he did that by being crucified on the, on the cross. The man who can't save himself saves others. I want you to believe in him. I want you to trust that he stayed on the cross. He stayed there until he had fully completed what he set out to do. And then fourth, the man who cries out in despair trusts in God. The man who cries out in despair trusts in God. And this is our next, that's our fourth and final irony. Let's hang with me for a few moments. Uh, verse 20, excuse me, 40, 43. He trusts in God. Let God deliver him now if he desires him. For he said, I am the son of God. And the robbers who were crucified with him also reviled him in the same way. Now, from the sixth hour, there was darkness over all the land until the ninth hour. Now, those people might not have recognized who he was, but nature did. He made everything. And I think this is the way of the... You remember what Jesus said, if they don't give me glory, the rocks are going to cry out. Well, all the people around are saying these things. Save yourself. You're the king of the Jews. So They don't recognize him, but then nature does, and the whole place becomes dark. About the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice, saying, Eli, Eli, let me sabachthani. That is translated, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And some of the bystanders hearing it said, this man's calling Elijah. Well, Jesus had been scourged and beaten, spit on, hit, smacked, crucified. So he says, Eli, Eli, let me sabachthani, and Probably through all the beating, his face is swollen. It sounds to Eli, Eli, it sounds like Elijah. So they say, well, he's calling Elijah, but, he, but he's saying something incredibly important. And it, what he's saying is the man who cries out in despair trusts in God. Now, I know we've done this before, but I just want to show you again from Scripture what this is all about. Because sometimes this, this, this statement, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It confounds us, confuses us, and we don't quite know what Jesus is getting at. So I want you to go back up in your Bible to verse 41. So also the chief priests with the scribes and elders mocked him, saying, he saved others, he cannot save himself. Now, the chief priests and the scribes and the elders, they were wicked men, but they were well-educated men. Uh, They were sinful men, but they had some book smarts. And one of the things that they knew very well was what we call the Old Testament. In fact, particularly the book of Psalms, one of the requirements to be a chief priest, for example, was to have the book of Psalms 
memorized. You hear that? Isn't it amazing that you could have the entire book of Psalms memorized and not recognize Jesus? You could know your Bible backwards and forwards, but not know Jesus. That's possible. You know him in your head and have a lot of information and some facts. You can know every word we've read today. Say, I've heard this all before, and not know Jesus. Let me prove it to you. Go with me in your Bible to Psalm chapter 22. So if you've got a Bible, you want to... Psalms is right in the middle of the Bible, so it's open about the halfway point. Now, in our day, we've got this thing kind of well-organized and numbers and chapter numbers and verse numbers. You, you, know that, uh, you know that, for example, look at Psalm 23, the most famous of the Psalms. Uh, they didn't call it Psalm 23. All that's added later, okay, for our organizational benefit. So that when I say turn in your Bible to Psalm 23, you can turn in your Bible. Or if, uh, you know, you're really with the times, you can just type it into your phone or your screen. And then it gets you there, right? But they didn't memorize things like that back then. What they do, though, is they memorize things by first lines. And we, we do this with our songs, too, right? Uh, Amazing Grace. Why do we call it that? What's the first line of the song? Amazing grace, right? Be thou my vision. Why do we call it that? What's the first line? Be thou my So when somebody stands up and says, we're going to sing together, let's sing Be Thou My Vision. It kind of gets you going. It's sort of like when you had training wheels and they give you a little boost, right? You get the first line. So if you're hanging with me, they would have called the Lord, excuse me, they would have called Psalm 23. What would they say? Let's recite the Lord is my shepherd. Now, so you see that first line gets you going. Now, look at Psalm 22. You're going to say, I saw that somewhere. <laughs> What's the first line of Psalm 22? Let me, let me, let me sabachthani. Or Eli, Eli, let me sabachthani. Jesus, as he's being crucified, is calling attention to a portion of Scripture. He's saying, now he doesn't say it in our Bible, he said, but, but in our vernacular, in our way of thinking, he's hanging on the cross, pushing up, can't breathe, mouth <laughs> swollen, Psalm 22. That's what he's saying. Why are you so far from saving me from the words of my groaning? My God, I cry by day, but you do not answer. And by night, I find no rest. And the whole land had become what? Dark like night. Yet you are holy and thrown in the praises of Israel. And you, our fathers, trusted. They trusted and you delivered, delivered them. If he's the son of God, he'll be delivered. To you they cried and were rescued, and you they trusted and were put to shame. But I am a worm and not a man, scorned by mankind and despised by the people. All who see me mock me. They make mouths at me, they wag their heads. Now what did Matthew 27 just say? They wag their heads at him. Now you ready for a little bombshell? Psalm 22 is written a thousand years ahead of time. This isn't written while Matthew 27 is going on. This is written by David a thousand years before Jesus is on the cross. He trusts in the Lord. Deliver him. Let him rescue him, for he delights in him. Yeah, you heard their criticism. That's exactly what they said. On you I was cast from my birth, from my mother's womb. You have been my God. Be not far from me, for trouble is near, and there is none to help. Who have you heard in Matthew 27 and all our reading that helped Jesus? Maybe Siren the Cyrene, if you want to stretch it a little bit. He carried the cross. But there's nobody to help. Where's outspoken Peter? Nowhere to be found. Many bulls encompass me. Strong bulls of Bashan surround me. They open wide their mouths at me like a ravening and roaring lion. I am poured out like water, and all of my bones are out of joint. 
My heart is like wax. It is melted within my breast. My strength is dried up like a potsherd, and my tongue sticks to my jaws. That's why they couldn't understand what he's saying. Is he calling Elijah? You lay me in the dust of death. We've been pretty clear so far, but let's get a little clearer. Dogs encompass me. Where Jesus was crucified was right near the town garbage dump where scavenger dogs were known to be in abundance. A company of evildoers encircles me. They have pierced my hands and feet. We can't get much clearer than that, can we? And the amazing thing to me is that I think when Jesus says this, the man who cries out in despair, trusting in God, he's giving an appeal to those wicked elders, scribes, chief priests, when he says this, because they knew their Bible. And as soon as he would have said this, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? They've got it memorized. They could have gone in their mind. And how cold-hearted, stone-hearted do you have to be to go through that psalm and see it living out right in front of you and still not believe? Well, that's what was true of them. Well, Psalm 22, uh, written a thousand years ahead of time, concludes like this. They shall come and proclaim his righteousness to a people yet unborn, that he has done it. The people yet unborn, that's me and you. And I can't help but think in my mind the way that psalm ends. It says, they'll, they'll proclaim it to a generation yet unborn, that he has done it, that Jesus gives them just enough time to go through that psalm in their mind, and then he says, it is finished. He's done it. It's the ironies of the cross. The man they mocked as king, he really is the king. The man who's utterly powerless is transcendently powerful. The man who can't save himself saves others. And the man who cries out in despair trusts God. And then the Bible says he breathed his last. In just two minutes, he's the God who dies and lives again. They put his lifeless body in the tomb. Three days later, it came out. Oh, man. Say all these things, we'd have to start beginning our service at 6 in the morning. But let's go to John 20. John 20, verse 24. Don't worry. We're, 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 just a few brief things. This is after the resurrection. He came out of the grave, by the way. To those people who say, you need to really, really be sure he's raised again... I always like to say, you need to be really, really, really sure he's not. Because if he is, not a whole lot of other things matter. John chapter 20, there is a man who wasn't quite sure if he'd been raised again. His name's Thomas. Unfortunately, we call him Doubting Thomas. We've kind of given him that name. Um, So uh, let's look in verse 24. Now, Thomas, one of the 12, called the twin, Didymus, uh, was not with them when Jesus came. Now, we're not told where he was. We're just told he wasn't there. So the other disciples told him, we've seen the Lord. But he said to them, unless I see it, unless I see in his hands the marks of the nails and place my finger in the marks of the nails and place my hands in his sides, I will never believe. Eight days later, his disciples were inside. Now, before we're too critical on Thomas, he's like any of us would be. We got to, we got to see it for ourselves. We got to know what happened for myself. Yeah, I've heard what you've said. I've got to see it for myself. Your parents can't believe the gospel for you. Their faith doesn't get applied to you. And I can't believe for my children. I wish I could. But there's got to come a time in my daughter's life where she sees the Lord for herself. She believes for herself. My son, 
Oh, if I'd give anything for my children to believe. I want to be a person like Paul who says, I'd give my own life if you'd, if you'd believe the gospel, to have that kind of heart for people. Thomas has just been through the ringer. I mean, he, all these things that he thought were going to happen, they didn't happen because Jesus was laid down in his life. He's not quite the Messiah we thought he was going to be, and I saw him. The last time I saw him, he, didn't even, he looked like a worm to me, not a man, like Psalm 22 said. I couldn't even tell he's a human being. He'd been so decimated. So I said, I will never believe. So eight days later, eight days of unbelief, his disciples were inside again, and Thomas was with him. Okay, so good, uh, good simple application. If you want to hear from Jesus, be with the people of God. Okay, so uh, although the doors were locked, <laughs> Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, Put your finger here. See my hands. And put your hand, place it in my side. Do not disbelieve but believe. Thomas answered him, my Lord and my God. Jesus said to him, statement for us, have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples which are not written in this book. But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. Now, the man they mocked as king really was the king. The, the, the man who's utterly powerless is transcendently powerful. The man who can't save himself saves others. The man who cries out in despair trusts in God. And if you wanted to add one more irony, the man they killed, he's alive. I want you to stand with me, and we're going to pray together. And... Um, Moving to a time of invitation. Now, the invitation portion of the worship service isn't just something, the last thing we got to do before we leave. Preferably, the invitation is a time for you to respond and think about the Word of God. And I, I pray as a church family, we, we, uh, uh, we treasure times of invitation. I want you to bow your head, and just in connection with what we've proclaimed from God's Word. I just want to ask a few application questions to kind of lead your thinking during the time of invitation. We're going to sing together, but as we sing, if you want to pray where you are, if you sometimes it just helps to put movement to, to uh, internal uh, thinking. If you want to move and just come kneel here at the altar at the front and, and pray, if, as a pastor, I'll stand here. If you've got a burden, a concern, if you've never believed in the Lord Jesus Christ and, and, um, and want to profess faith in Christ, or you just want to say, Pastor Brandon, I, I, just, I just need to talk to somebody or pray about something. I'll stand right here at the front. Jesus was mocked as king, but he really is king. In your life, are you submitted to him as the king? Are his commands commands to you and not holy suggestions? Do you see what he says to do and then, and then you do it? Not, not like a private would for a general. I mean, there is that spirit to it, but, but like a child would to a father when the child knows his father loves him and that his commands are for his, for his best. Are there things that Jesus has told you to do to put, a, to put to death a sin in your life or to forgive somebody and you've just not brought yourself to be able to do it? You'll never bring yourself to do it. The Holy Spirit the Holy Spirit will accomplish it in your life, though. Jesus 
seemed utterly powerless when he was on the cross, but he's transcendently powerful. Is there something in your life that you've really believed that God, <laughs> he couldn't do it? I'm not talking about things that are, you know, unscriptural. But is there healing that needs to take place in your life that you don't, haven't really trusted Jesus with? Maybe it's a sin issue like we talked about. Jealousy or anger or pornography or lust or envy, greed. There's just a secret sin that not a lot of other people, if anybody even knows about it, but you know about it, and it's literally draining the life from you. It's leaving you weak, and you've tried a whole lot of other stuff. Would you have the faith to go for the fringe of the garment? He's powerful, but he doesn't run out of power. He doesn't just have time for Jairus. He's got time for you. Maybe you think, man, I passed a deadline. There's no deadline with the Lord in these, in, in these matters. Not until you stop breathing. And then, the, then the one who couldn't save himself saves others. Have you been saved by the grace of God in Christ Jesus? Have you believed in the Lord as Savior? That, that, he's, that he's done everything that's necessary to save you. Father, I pray you'd use this time of invitation now for a time of listening, not being hearers of the word only, but doers, for humble response, for prayerful response, for your Holy Spirit to whisper to us or if need be, to shout at us what we need to believe. Thank you for Matthew 27 and that all the Bible does answer this question. How can a holy God redeem an unholy people without himself being unholy? And the answer is Jesus. The answer is the cross. And I pray for anyone that's here today, like Thomas, said, I've, I've just not seen it for myself. Lord, by your grace, by your word, by your spirit, you would help them who have not seen to believe. Pray in Jesus' name. Amen.